My guest is Stéphane de Rink. Stéphane de Rink was a senior advisor to Michel Barnier, the chief Brexit negotiator for the European Union. Uh, he now represents the European Commission in Belgium. Uh, he's also the author of a, a new book, Inside the Deal, How the EU Got Brexit Done. Welcome to the podcast, Stefan. Thank you, Paul. Now, um, I'm very interested personally in, in the future relationship with, between the EU and the UK, especially after the Windsor Framework Agreement of a few weeks ago. But uh, I think your book is an excellent starting point for trying to work out not just how things went when the UK finally submitted its Article 50 notice to the European Union about how things would, could proceed. So I think let's, let's use your book as a, as a launching pad for, for future understanding of how the two sides may work better together going forward. I thought I would start, if I may, by uh, what you call the, the, the four Brexit fallacies. You say on the UK side, there was a confrontational approach with Brussels. Uh, secondly, the EU conspired with the Remainers in the UK. Thirdly, uh, Michel Barnier was a dogmatic theologian uh, of the EU rulebook. And finally, that the, the EU always budges at the last minute. So uh, quite a lot of misunderstandings there on, on the UK side. How long did these, these what you call fallacies, take before they came onto your own radar screen and that of Michel Barnier? Well, they emerged during the negotiations. I mean, the fact that Michel Barnier or the EU as a whole was accused of being dogmatic theologians and saying, okay, the single market means four freedoms. If you don't want free movement of people, you can't have free movement of goods and services. That emerged throughout the negotiations, 1718, with the Theresa May plan to stay in the single market for goods somehow without having free movement of people. The idea that Michel Barnier was part of a, an idea that Brexit would be sabotaged, which was a live idea in some circles in the UK, not, not in general in the UK, but it also decision-making circles were still there under Boris Johnson, I would think. Uh, at least Dominic Cummings has said that on the record that he, that he, that they thought in still in September, October 19, that Brexit could be jeopardized. There was the Ban Act that excluded leaving without a deal, mm. and that all, and, and that the EU will be part of that. And Barney used to say, you don't need a negotiator for no deal. So we were on the side of those who wanted an orderly Brexit by definition. Not that we in the EU wanted Brexit, but as soon as Article 50 was launched, we wanted an orderly Brexit, obviously, which meant a deal, which meant Brexit, by logical implication. <laughs> right. So what strikes me, is it's only quite recently, but it seems like a long time ago, that the, the UK made a, well, what some people would argue were, were tactical missteps, but certainly they had ideas which didn't, which didn't seem to work in practice. This idea, again, it seems like ancient history, um, no negotiation before notification, the EU said, when mm. the UK tried to start informal discussions right before they'd formally uh, notified through Article 50 procedure. This idea that they could try and work also with certain member states, not necessarily behind the back of the European Commission, but certainly alongside the European Commission, that was obviously um, uh, rejected by, by the EU, clearly. Uh, the uh, whole idea of sequencing, where, where that the, the UK and the EU had different idea about taking on different dossiers like the budget repayment and all that kind of stuff. Um, the idea also that the UK had that uh, we, you could have a discussion also at the same time as the withdrawal agreement discussion of uh, the future relationship. And again, Michel Barnier, on behalf of the EU, uh, was kept saying, no, we need to do the withdrawal agreement business first. It, str it strikes me, uh, without being seen as too partial, that the UK misread many of the steps along the way, as documented in your book. Well, the book starts with the premise that there is a huge misunderstanding 
between the UK and the EU on the meaning of Brexit, right. the meaning of the referendum, and that some people in the UK, in my view, underestimated the gravity of an in-out referendum. It's a binary choice where you're out and you diminish your political influence over the EU by definition because you put yourself outside of the system. And I think that is at heart of some of the fallacies you, you mentioned earlier, this accusation of being dogmatic, partly stems from a surprise that the EU was not more flexible to accommodate the preferences of an outgoing member. Mm. Um, the no negotiation without notification is a very important period. I mean, I describe, of course, in my book then all of what you say from the UK side as something from the EU side. So yeah. we use the no negotiation without notification June 16 till March 17, to build the unity of the EU, which again was a given at the level of EU leaders from the start, but still needed to be constructed, solidified, mm -hmm. and so it was an important moment for us to discuss with member states what kind of negotiation approach they would want, where we pushed for the sequencing, as you say, mm. separating the separation terms from the future relationship terms, and building some the mandate for our negotiations along some crystal clear principles, which is quite unusual for some EU texts. If you look at the April 17 guidelines of the European Council, our kind of key principles for negotiations, they're crystal clear. Every sentence in that text is, is so clear. And that clarity, that unity around that clarity helped us also throughout these negotiations. Some people in the UK argue that the UK government made a mistake by not engaging more with capitals bilaterally during the non-negotiation without notification phase. I don't think it would have made a difference because the, the willingness, the political commitment from EU leaders like Hollande at the time or then Macron or Merkel, mm. uh, Rutte in the Netherlands and others, was to stay united very strongly and to avoid parallel discussions, negotiations uh, w with the UK. So some people who say we should have tested ideas with national capitals. Inform I don't think informally. Yes, informally. I don't think it would have made a difference. Right. Of course, that's a counterfactual now. But I my, my, And in the book, I say that also from my, my feeling from how the political mood and temperature was in, in the EU um, was not to, to, to engage informally. And one has to remember that unity was also, in my view at least, if you look at it historically, grounded in the euro crisis, the migration crisis, the years before 2016, before Brexit, were terribly divisive years for the European Union. And when Brexit happened, EU leaders said, we, we cannot afford let ourselves be divided over what could become yet another existential challenge mm. for the EU. Grexit was a, a one year earlier, right? And yeah. we avoided it. The yeah. whole cliff edge of Greece going out of the Eurozone. And People didn't want to repeat that kind of experience in, in this context with the fear of contagion of Brexit to other countries. I suppose now, again, looking back, you can say, well, it was everybody's interest on the EU side to have this unity because any deal which was eventually struck would have to be approved unanimously anyway, right? So they, it was in everybody's interest, and Michel Barnier had been quite clear about that, hmm. uh, that, that necessity. Having said that, at the beginning, how, how difficult do you think he... he the task was for Michel Barnier, and what did he say to you about the, the, the difficulty inherent in trying to achieve this unity amongst the E27 and then maintain it? But I think on, th on the principles, the unity was very strong amongst EU leaders from the very start, even before Michel Barnier took office. All right. uh, Angela Merkel said basically already publicly the four freedoms are indivisible. Francois Hollande, as I did document in the book, told this also too privately to Theresa May in July in her first foreign visit to Berlin and Paris. Uh, someone like Xavier Bettel, Luxembourg Prime Minister already back then, said, well, the UK 
um, was a member with opt-outs, now it seems to be want to become a non-member with opt-in, so this kind of cherry-picking, he said is in October 16 already. And what Barnier, as I document also in the book, his first visit in his tour of capitals, as he called it, was to Mark Rutte in The Hague. And it was very clear from that meeting that the integrity of the single market, the autonomy of the EU's decision-making, its legal order, would be preserved throughout these negotiations. Then it was a matter of solidifying that, translating that, and I think the most difficult issue in these first months was the idea of sequencing. Um, some member states, or some diplomats rather than member states, um, were, were, were somewhat puzzled in the beginning, so there was a lot of talking to be done there on why that would be important to separate the financial settlement, what some people call the Brexit bill in the UK, yeah. or the citizen's right from the future relationship. Uh, in a way also to build the foundation of trust going forward for the future relationship, that the UK would honor its obligations from the past before we discuss the future. Some people like some in the, EU, the diplomatic circles in, in the EU thought that could perhaps increase the chances of no deal um, if, if, if we did that. A bit like also David Davis would say on the UK side, we need to discuss everything together as a package basically. And we resisted that successfully and I think for, 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 for the better because in the UK there was, come back to your first question on fallacies and misunderstandings, some people saw this Brexit bill as it's called as a punishment bill as why do we have to pay to leave mm. kind of rhetoric you could hear and we were always saying you don't have to pay to leave under international law you have obligations to your last day of membership those are the ones we want you to honor I should point out to listeners that part of your brief, as I understand it, uh, as part of Michel Barnier's team, was to is do a lot of outreach and to talk to the media as well as civil society groups, think tanks in the UK and elsewhere. And you, as you know, there's a well well rehearsed uh, refrain about how British media has deformed the narrative about the, what the EU is about, and that's that's well that's well documented. What is maybe less well appreciated, and, and you quote, is the relative lack of knowledge of the media uh, in Britain about how the EU works. And to be fair to the UK, that may not be unique just to the United Kingdom, but you quote a senior editor says, who tells you, uh, in our Westminster village, we do not understand enough about the EU to hold our government to account. So it's not just the, the Brussels bashing stories, which mm. we were familiar with, bent bananas, straight bananas, etc. It's also the fact that the journalists themselves don't know enough about how the place works uh, and in many ways probably are too proud to admit it. Mm. Well, uh, as you say in, in your question, it's not a monopoly of the UK uh, media, that lack of knowledge. It's something you find in, in many member states that people who follow um, the Elysee or journalists or who follow what the Belgian Prime Minister is doing see the EU through that lens and are bathing every day in, in the gossip of uh, Rue de la Loire in Belgium or, or, or what's happening in Spanish politics, let's yeah. say, and therefore have a biased lens which, which they then look at the EU from. And, and, and I was struck by that editor who said that indeed, and who said, you know, we, I don't have enough information to hold my government to account. That it was quite a, in terms of the, the fifth estate or all of the media, it was quite a, a telling statement, I would say. Not all British media, though, suffered from that, I, I would hasten to add, because right. in these kind of discussions, we often say the UK this, the UK thinks that, it's, it's more 
nuanced than that, of course. There's, there's a struggle for mm. <laughs> power in the UK, like in every other country in yeah. terms of how, how that works. And certainly there was a part of the media which didn't care about consulting EU sources, as I document also in the book, and just wrote about this from UK sources. The EU was thinking that this and that, and portraying the e what the EU was thinking based on UK sources only. But that's, that's not all British media, that's not all UK media that uh, suffer from that syndrome, I would say. And, and there's some British journalists who have done a remarkable job from the very start to predict all the negative consequences Brexit mm. would bring for trade, uh, contradicting what Theresa May's ministers were saying, that you know we could keep trading on the same terms after Brexit, that Brexit leaving the single market was didn't have any impact on trade. We're contradicting that and we're challenging the government and trying to hold the government to account for such statements, which yeah. are obviously not true because you can't leave the single market and pretend it has no impact on trade. That's just yeah. a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what the single market is. Right. What is is obvious now, but and but striking when you think about it also, is the fact that on the EU side, the the personalities were remarkably stable, and I don't just mean mentally stable, <laughs> but in terms of there were very few, if any, changes of the the top team. Whereas on the UK side, as you know, know much better than I do, there was a whole series of of UK negotiators, and maybe and that maybe helped to feed this idea more than an idea, the reality that the the UK from the EU perspective, did not know what it really wanted mm. uh, out of the whole the discussions. You you quote, um, is it May, uh, saying to Angela Merkel, uh, make me an offer at some point in the proceedings, that maybe you could, did that did that come across a, a lot during the time you were working with Michel Barnier, that uh, apart from some of the, the game playing and the, the brinkmanship and the lack of, you know, that the, the UK at the end of the day really did not have any clarity about its objectives? Well, to paraphrase, I would say the EU leadership was strong and stable uh, yes. <laughs> throughout <Yeah>. this period. <laughs> <Very good. laughs> but Michel Barnier was a constant factor, and when Ursula von der Leyen took over from Juncker, we, that was also an important factor of continuity and political leadership. So, but there was indeed fewer changes than on on on, on the on the UK side, where we had four different negotiators in in three and a half years. This brinkmanship issue. There are two things I would say. One, on, on the EU side, what helped us there was the unity. There were times where there was a lot of political turbulence on the UK side, obviously. Um, and indeed, the UK not having unified vision on, on what Brexit meant and what it wanted from the future relationship. And the unity allowed us as negotiating team to remain patient and, and wait this out and, mm -hmm. and give the time to the UK to, to find an equilibrium, basically, which it only found in the very end during an election when Boris Johnson decisively won right. in December 19 to get Brexit done, as, as the slogan was. And then the UK political system had a clear majority and found a better equilibrium in a way, from a political perspective at least. Mm. I, what, what has always struck me, and then I come back to your point on sequencing, is the UK said we don't want this sequencing or UK ministers from May's government. We want to talk about the future. We said no, and we had the sequencing. and then. Nine months later, in March 18, when we said, okay, now we're ready to talk about the future, uh, the EU leaders have given us uh, now the mandate for that, the UK was clearly not ready. And this was nearly two years after the referendum. And of course, partly of part of the reason for that was political. There was no majority in the House of Commons, so the, uh, Theresa May had lost uh, the elections um, in June 17, basically, or at least her her majority had gone down and she mm. didn't have an absolute majority anymore. So that complicated the task. Her government 
but didn't have a unif unified vision on what it wanted from Brexit. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit, yeah, I think that was a, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, she, she had to keep going, I think. But with the benefit of hindsight, it was a recipe for, for political disaster in the end. Was that a c kind of corollary of the fact that you, you for very obviously good practical, maybe uh, strategic reasons, you didn't want the, the withdrawal agreement negotiation to be confused with or combined with the future relationship uh, negotiation. Is that is that a part of the reason or not? Well, we certainly we we wanted the withdrawal agreement in December 17, when we had the agreement on the withdrawal terms, not yet on the agreement. There was immediately a risk of backtracking on the UK side in public statements as I document in the book from David Davis on the Andrew Marr show, but, but also from other UK leaders. And that certainly fueled a momentum on the EU side to say, okay, let's pin down now the withdrawal agreement before we move to the future relationship, mm -hmm. which explains why in March 18, before we opened the discussions on the future, we wanted to pin down the withdrawal agreement as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And for 80, 90% we did in March 18. Because back then there was indeed a strong feeling of distrust from some member states towards the UK, yeah. and so let, let, let's just let's just consolidate the withdrawal terms in a legally binding text before we then move into this political declaration on the future relationship. That was certainly part of that logic. Yes. All oh right, and again, and correct me if I'm wrong, and, and maybe to help elucidate for our listeners, uh, maybe a document that not very much referred to these days, the political agreement which was attached to the withdrawal agreement, the political mm. declaration, sorry, I should get my, my words <laughs> right, uh, attached to the withdrawal agreement, had some of these uh, signs, maybe not in great substance by definition, of, of a possible future relationship. Is that, is that that kind of bridge between the withdrawal agreement and the, and the trade and cooperation agreement? Yes, we, in November 18, with Theresa May, and then later on with Boris Johnson in, in October 19, the package that was adopted was the withdrawal agreement with the political declaration on the future relationship. Because Article 50 of the EU's treaty says uh, withdrawal agreement taking into account the future relationship. Now, it is, as you said earlier, a bit of ancient history. A lot of energy went into that political declaration. Nights and weekends of talks and negotiations <laughs> for something. And when David Frost and Boris Johnson took over with a more decisive majority, so well on level playing field, we're no longer feel bound by what we, w what we signed there five months earlier on the common foreign security policy, we no longer feel bound about what we signed there. So in a way, when you look back about that, so much time has gone into something which we needed because we needed to give a perspective on the future relationship, obviously, uh, as yeah. part of the withdrawal uh, exercise. But you mentioned specifically the level playing field issues. Of course, that was that was and still is arguably a, a, a key issue between the two sides, right? And a, a potential cause of huge friction even now, even after this, in this slightly more cooperative, constructive post-Windsor framework uh, environment we're mm. living in. You say in the book that uh, at some point the British negotiators kind of sent you all a long list of the, the deals you've struck with um, and with other third countries around the world, uh, saying why if you've done if you've made these kind of gestures or whatever or concessions or whatever they are with other third countries, why can't you do that with us, the UK? And then towards the end of the book, you do say that uh, you, you were you were annoyed. You, I think the word is he was annoyed that the UK uh, was offering legally binding trade obligations to countries like Japan. Uh, Ukraine and Australia beyond what it was offering to Brussels. So from an outside perspective, an ill-informed maybe outside <laughs> perspective, it sounds like a bit of a dialogue of the deaf. It, it was, and I think it was a shame. 
so we had indeed agreed with Boris Johnson, David Frost in October 19, guarantees for a level playing field, most notably on state aid or subsidies, as was then called, and, and non-regression from social environment standards. Uh, non-regression is not going backwards. Exactly. So um, a, a list of social environmental regulations and then UK committing not to go back on what de facto was UK law but then, because it was transposing EU law in, into UK law. Why was that important for us? Uh, again, come back to the very first conversation of Barnier with Mark Rutte in October 16. It was clear that any trading agreement, any free trade agreement with the UK, had to have substantive level playing field guarantees because of the proximity and because of the risk, the immediate risk of distortions of competition. Uh, the UK is a big economy, a prosperous economy, G7 member, con geographically part of the European continent and very close to the single market, obviously. And so EU leaders in Denmark, in Belgium, in France, in the Netherlands, in Ireland were very concerned about uh, unfair competition terms in, in a new trade deal. Mm -hmm. And so coming back then to, to your question, when we started negotiations in March, April 2020 with David Frost, who was Boris Johnson's negotiator, we said, well, this is one of our core demands next to fishery and fundamental rights for security, cooperation and, and governance. And the UK refused almost to engage on that or, or, or refute it and said, we WTO terms are fine for us, yeah. uh, which was a breach, of course, or a regression, let's say, from the political declaration we had agreed. Yeah. And in my view, it it's not how it, it's part of these fallacies we started a conversation with the UK seemed to want confrontation on a number of things that we were asking mm. and I say in the book the way to get leverage or influence in the negotiation is to give something to the other party that the other party wants yeah and for me it was clear from the start and for all member states that we couldn't get a deal without solid level playing field guarantees yeah and so I think we wasted time on that we're coming actually quite almost the end of our conversation Stefan, but uh, again, just to remind our listeners and to remind ourselves, so the UK formally uh, left the European Union at the end of January 2020. There was a transition period till the end of that year of 11 months. Uh, early March, again, correct me on the timing if I'm wrong, uh, you, you, the EU, received a, a negotiator or had a confirmed a negotiating mandate, yes. that's correct, to, 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 to agree with the UK, if possible. The new relationship, mm. but in an extraordinarily short period of time, when you think about it, made even shorter. Again, my mm. understanding because the UK refused any extension, mm -hmm. and a lot of you say in the book time time wasting. Was there a, any point from Michel Barnier and the rest of the team a, a sense of uh, frustration that that more could have been achieved in those few months, March to December 2020? Uh, about, uh, you know, to flesh out in more substantive, meaningful terms a future relationship, but the time, just the clock, just was just ticking. Yes, well, in the book I say that one ambassador here in Brussels of a bigger member state had predicted in January that not much would happen until September 2020. Right. And that was also our feeling in the team. I think from a rational negotiation perspective, uh, if you look at it, calmly, apolitically almost, you could say, yes, engage on fisheries from the start, engage on level playing fields from the start as UK, mm -hmm. uh, because that will broaden your influence over the talks, I would argue, uh, as, a, as a party, if you offer things to the other party. But I guess they, from the UK side, from me, they took the wrong lessons from Theresa May, because they had perceived Theresa May as being a weak negotiator. 
and say we can't make that same mistake we have to be tough uh, from day one and the first week Barnier told us our key objective of this week is to build trust with our UK negotiators at the end of the week as I write in the book trust was in lower supply than at the beginning of the week May stuck to something that she wanted uh, and was a tough negotiator in that sense. And if you look at the political declaration, we preserved, with, agreed with her on the future, we preserved our, the essentials of what the EU wanted, but at the same time giving some kind of opening to May to claim that she also had achieved a number of important things and of the soft Brexit she wanted. To come back again to your question, I think indeed we wasted valuable time in 2020, in March till June, August 2020. The UK threatened to walk away mm. various times, no deal. thinking it would give m- maybe more influence in the talks, while in reality the opposite happened, in particular when they had the UK Internal Market Bill, when they tr- violated you know, what was agreed in the withdrawal agreement on Ireland, Northern Ireland notably. So all that was um, created a bad atmosphere, so to say. I would also say that if you bring it back then to the fallacies and, 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 and how you started the conversation, all these factors are gone today, right? right. The, the ticking clock, yeah. the cliff edge, yeah. uh, there is a deal now, uh, there is a new equilibrium in the trade and cooperation agreement with the Windsor deal, we can now turn the page and focus on win-win situations. Uh, I would hope uh, and exploit the potential of that trade and cooperation agreement. So all the factors that I have in the book, which somewhat poison UK politics in the first place, I would think, that the idea that Brexit perhaps wouldn't happen mm. was also an important one, next to the cliff edge and the no deal and all those things. All these things are gone today. Right. And so hopefully we get into calmer waters. <laughs> well, on these calmer waters, <laughs> uh, a final question, and I know you are speaking in a personal capacity of the author of this book, not representing the European Commission or the EU more broadly, Stefan, but uh, the next major sort of milestone in this long-running saga is, of course, the review of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, the TCA. Um, what is your understanding of that review process from your perspective? Is it, is it going to be a, a kind of, without being too simplistic, a, a box-ticking exercise where there's a kind of review how, of how things have gone until, until then? Mm. Or do you think there's now a, 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 a more, more a political uh, appetite, if you like, for making this review, which could be, as without being <laughs> disrespectful, <laughs> a mere bureaucratic exercise into a slightly more politically creative exercise? Well, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement has the political commitment and the legally binding commitment to review. So that's, um, that's what we know for sure. Um, and at the risk of being bureaucratic in my answer, it's also political and not just bureaucratic. Yeah. I think what will first need to be done on the EU side is build up a common understanding of what the review means from the EU side. Right. And that means Commission, European Parliament, Member States, the 27 national governments, building that common understanding. And so that's a procedural answer, but also a very political answer in right. terms of the unity of the EU. Now, how that process will look like, we're talking about something which is beyond the next European elections. Yeah. We're talking the about the new European Parliament. The next uh, British elections as well. <laughs> exactly, so, <laughs> and, and so that's very, very hard to predict. Yeah what the political lay of the land will be. The political commitment and the legal commitment is there to, to, to have that review. Right. But the first thing yeah. to do, I think, is step by step now, exploit that full potential of a trade and cooperation agreement. And again, that's an unknown factor of how that will unfold over the next two years before all these elections, perhaps. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Stefan de Ring, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.